All right, Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 6, and then we're jumping into 2 Samuel chapter 15. Proverbs 6, 2 Samuel 15. If you've been around Waterfront uh, for longer than a few years, you've definitely heard me share Proverbs 6, 12 through 15. It is a powerful set of verses on villainy and corruption, and uh, uh, it sets the tone for what's about to happen. You got to know with Absalom, it's so interesting. Absalom, we've studied about all this sin that was done to him and all this sin that was done around his life and even the sin that he gets tied into that is specifically connected to uh, the mess that was done to him. By the time we get to uh, chapter 15 where we're at, uh, he eventually, and this is true for all of us, it doesn't matter what played into you becoming who you are. You're going to stand before the Lord, not in a group, but you're going to stand before the Lord individually. And honestly, let's just tell the truth. Without Jesus, we are sunk. You realize that, don't you? Without Jesus, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It doesn't matter how many good people you're connected to. It doesn't matter what position you hold. Without Jesus, every single one of us is sunk. And Absalom, in these circumstances, he is truly standing on his own two feet. But he has become what the passage here in Proverbs calls a scoundrel and a villain and one who is corrupt. Uh, our study today starts with this question. Have you ever watched a movie about how someone became a villain before? You ever watched a movie about how someone became a villain before? Um, if you, uh, there was kind of a movement about uh, 20, 25 years ago uh, to uh, do the hero origin stories. You know, how did Spider-Man become Spider-Man, right? You know, how did Batman become Batman? All these different origin story movies where they start at the beginning and you learn the character. But you also had kind of recently how the villains became the villain. You want to watch the story and go, this awful, vile human being, how is it that they became uh, this person? In fact, the second Star Wars trilogy is dedicated to that completely with Darth Vader, right? You get the evil character of Darth Vader in episode four, five, and six uh, with the original trilogy, uh, but then with the prequel that they did, it was how Darth Vader became Darth Vader, right? All sorts of different characters. In fact, there was a TV series kind of devoted to this. A guy named Vince Gilligan made a series called Breaking Bad, uh, where again, they took this attitude of how did somebody who was a school teacher turn into someone who was a meth, a meth dealer, right? Uh, how could they go to that point? Uh, Vince Gilligan then went further and did that series, Better Call Saul. How does a sleazy lawyer become a sleazy lawyer, right? I'll tell you that story just to say this, an obsession in our culture of how someone became who they are, for better or for worse. So, Probably the most famous villain, if you take all the different surveys, the most famous villain is Batman's arch nemesis. Who is it? The Joker. Now, here's what's interesting. What is the Joker's origin story? It depends on who you go with. Most villains have a similar origin story, but the Joker, the 1980s version with Jack, Nicholas as, uh, or Jack Nicholson as the, uh, as the Joker, do you remember how he becomes the Joker? falls into a vat of acid. Very 1980s way to become a uh, villain. 1980s, early 90s way to become a villain. It wasn't society. It was the vat of acid that turns him into the Joker. Uh, you watch the one that's more recent and his mom's, uh, the, uh, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix and his mom's illness kind of caused him. Y'all can tell I watch a lot of movies, all right? Again, mom's illness. Again, he's got different struggles. And then this is interesting. Uh, in the original comic, one of the origin stories for the Joker is that he was a bad comedian. 
comedian and that the people not laughing at his jokes is what caused him to eventually become the Joker. It's interesting because the movie The Dark Knight that came out played into this attitude of the Joker not having one true origin story where he would look at the characters and go, you know how I got these scars, remember? And then he tells a different story every time. It was kind of an homage or a tip of the hat to the fact that Joker's just crazy. They have no idea how he got uh, to that point. What's interesting about what we're going to read, for you and your life, we're not looking at this from a societal perspective. We're not looking at this for a villain superhero origin story. What I want us to do is look in the mirror as we go through these passages because every single one of us in this room has the propensity to be wicked, awful, and destructive to the people around us, specifically those that we love the most and who know us the best. So we're going to talk about corruption today. Corruption is kind of interesting, by the way. Corruption, the idea of of corruption, is at one time uh, you were useful, or at least there were plans for you to be useful, but now you've become harmful. When something becomes corrupted, it was intended for good, but it has become something that is truly wicked and harmful. Now look at Proverbs 6, and we're going to look at a corrupt individual. Here's Here's what the writer here has to say. It says, chapter 6, verse 12 of Proverbs, a scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth. Underline scoundrel, villain, and then this idea of a corrupt mouth who winks with the eye, signals with his feet, Motions with his fingers, plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension. Verse 15 is pretty powerful. You ready for this? Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will be suddenly destroyed without remedy. Underline and highlight the last part of verse 15. He will be under, he will be uh, destroyed and without remedy. Here's the picture. Not just someone who falls into evil. But this passage talks about an individual that just has plotted evil so much and has tied other people into the process of evil to the point that all they've got to do is wink with their eye, motion with their fingers, and others know how to enact in that evil. That is a person who is a villain. That is someone who has become corrupt. You've tied others into the sin that you yourself have dipped into. Now, just for the record, all sin falls short of the glory of God and requires the shed blood of Jesus Christ for us to be forgiven. But don't miss the warning that we get in Proverbs 6. If you lead others to sin, the writer says, through the mouth of Almighty God, you'll be swiftly and mercilessly destroyed. Quick destruction come to those who tie others into their wicked plots and into their sin. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. When your wickedness is numb to conviction and you knowingly organize those around you to participate, you invite the wrath of God. He said again, when your wickedness is numb to conviction and you knowingly organize those around you to participate, you invite the wrath wrath of God. It says specifically, you will be suddenly destroyed and without remedy. Now, nobody wakes up in the morning and wants to be the joker, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and wants to be the wicked version of Darth Vader, all right? Maybe some of you do, but we can talk about that later, all right? there's There's a comic convention happening next week you can go to, all right? I'm just telling you, for the most part, nobody wakes up and wants to be the absolute worst version of themselves to the people that they love the most. Nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to do that, and yet it does happen, doesn't it? It does happen. So how do we keep it from happening to us? 
The passage we're going to look at is going to illustrate today the path to corruption that Absalom follows. Are you ready for this? Flip open now, 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 to get up to speed from last week, and then we'll jump in addressing the question. If you're taking notes, how does a godly leader become corrupt? How does a godly leader become corrupt? Fight the urge to look through the lens at society on this one today. Fight through the lens, or fight through the urge to look through the lens at your boss today or at one of your coworkers. Look in the mirror on this passage and figure out if there are parts of your, uh, of your spirit that are becoming corrupt. You ready? 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. These are the verses we read last week. It says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot, horses, with 50 men to run ahead of him. So he would get up early, stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate, and whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servants from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Now stop right there for just a minute. It's ironic because what Absalom is doing here is standing out in front of the city gate, denying the people who are seeking justice. Remember we studied this last week. He's doing anything but giving them justice. He's keeping them from even walking through the city gates uh, to receive what it is that they're seeking. He's trying to get them to submit to him. He's trying to get them to follow him, not to actually help them. Verse 5, also whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. It says Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He has a plan in place. Remember, David wasn't ready for them to reconcile and Absalom wasn't sorry. When somebody's not ready, someone's not sorry, reconciliation cannot take place. David's heart is starting to come around, and we're going to read about that in just a minute. But Absalom, instead of repenting for what he's done and killing his brother Amnon in cold blood, instead, he continues to hold on to the justification, and he just continues to go about. Instead of repenting, he begins to scheme to do things that are even worse. He begins to think to himself, you know, I took out Amnon and that problem seemed to go away. Now I just need to take out David and the kingdom will be mine. I just need to run him off and the kingdom will belong to me. Now look at verse 7 and underline this. At the end of four years. Some of your translations will say 40. That's the original Septuagint, or that's the, uh, the Septuagint, okay? The one that's been translated into Greek. Can I tell you why I think it's four and not 40? Okay, because that would make David really, really old at the end. And just my personal study, I think that it's closer to four than it is to 40. If you're reading old King James, it's going to say 40. It does skew the timeline just a little bit. So I just want you to know I'm preaching from the perspective that it's four and not 40 today. Here's what you need to know. Remember how long it was that Absalom's in Gesher? It was three years. Remember how long Joab is his next door neighbor where David continues to put him off? It's two years. That's five. Plus four years of him doing this, this, this junk at the city gate. All of a sudden, that is nine years, almost a decade. 
David has been waiting for him to come around, but not dealing with this situation. I guarantee you that after a period of four years, David at least heard that Absalom was doing this. For whatever reason, he chose to not deal with it. He wants his son to be sorry because as soon as his son is sorry, he can go through that process of repentance and then he doesn't have to put him to death for the murder of Amnon. There can be a place where he can be presented before the country and they can be whole again. But Absalom doesn't want that. He wants control. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow that I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Stop right there for just a minute. You got to realize what Absalom has done here. Absalom realizes David's ready to reconcile, but Absalom doesn't, he's not sorry for the thing that he's done. So he sees David and goes, I know what's going to get you, old man. I know what it is that you want from me. You want me to go and repent just like you did when you've been in your sin. You want me to do the same thing. He knows the thing to do, but he doesn't mean it in his heart. So he's put together this plan to take control of the kingdom. And he goes to David and goes, do you mind if I go to Hebron? I know I'm on house arrest. I know that I've done things that are bad. But I promised the Lord that if I ever got to come back from Geshur, if I ever got to come back to Jerusalem, that I would then repent and offer sacrifices before the Lord. This is what David has prayed for for a decade. That his son would come to a point of repentance. After this happens, he can bring him before the country. There can be this beautiful moment of repentance that takes place where he says he's knows, he knows what he's done to Amnon is wrong. He knows the rule of law has to be in place. Then David can reunite the kingdom through his son's repentance. He can make the family and the country whole. But you see, to Absalom, it's all just a big scheme. He knows it's what David wants to hear so that he can leave. If you're taking notes, don't miss this. How does a godly leader become corrupt? Number one, faith becomes a prop. Faith becomes a prop. In this circumstance, Absalom knows what he has to say. He can pull at the heartstrings of his father, and then he'll be able to leave town and put together this rebellion. I want to encourage you, for each of us, there are going to be points where we say things or we portray things about our walk with God that are false and not true. But when we continue in that in the sin of lifestyle, when faith becomes a prop, there's seeds of corruption that take place, that take root in your heart and in your mind, and it causes you to become someone deeply, deeply wicked. None of us can be true all the time, but we have to fight that urge to be dishonest. Faith becomes a prop. I'll give you an example of that. Um, <clears throat> this is a good version of this story. But my dad back in the day <clears throat> um, was an evangelist. And dad traveled and preached all over the world. Um, he, think about the difference between an evangelist and a pastor. He preached in a different church every week. It was usually 50 to 52 weeks a year. Um, my dad would preach. In fact, some of you in the audience, my dad did revivals at your, uh, uh, at your churches that you grew up in. Uh, and so here's the deal. Uh, 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 an evangelist has about 20 sermons that they preach throughout their career. 
where I've got to preach something new every week, multiple times a week, okay, as a pastor of a church. But dad could preach the good stuff. He could preach his, the stuff that he had refined, that he had, uh, that he had dug through, and that's where he really connected. So all that to say, one of his famous sermons uh, was a sermon on Elijah and Elisha, and, uh, or excuse me, Elijah on Mount Carmel. And uh, in the story that dad would tell, it's about 40 verses that he would go through. Um, but my dad had those verses memorized because he'd preached that sermon a million times. And so there's a famous picture of my dad with his glasses off, because he always preached with his glasses off, and he is holding a Gideon's New Testament, okay? Little bitty New Testament. Now, if you know your Bible, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel is in 2 Kings in the Old Testament, Okay? He's holding a Gideon's New Testament. He has his glasses off, and he could not read without his glasses. And he has the Bible upside down, all right? And the picture is of him quoting verbatim, word for word, every single one of the verses through that passage. And so we never forget, we see this, and he's got it word for word with the full translation. And we were like, Dad, how in the world does this happen? We're like, the Bible is basically a prop in this thing. What are you doing? He goes, I've got it memorized. He said, I've had to preach it so many times. He said, I know every word. And he goes, it's important for the people to see that I'm reading from the word of the Lord. He said, and that particular day, all I had was my little New Testament, all right? Now listen, not necessarily good, all right? Right on the line. But when the Bible becomes a prop for you, that's a really, really bad thing. Very few of you in this room have every single word memorized in the story of Elijah. For the most part, we can utilize Scripture to justify things in our lives when the truth is we've never read it. And we don't really know if that's something that Jesus would do or not. It becomes... A prop. And that's what takes place here for Absalom. He knows he can play the faith card and he can get exactly what it is that he wants. If you want to take notes, write this down. Insincere belief in God's sovereignty encourages a leader to pick and choose their own theology. Insincere belief in God's sovereignty encourages a leader to pick and choose their own theology. When does our faith become a prop? When we stop believing that the Lord is over everything, that he sees everything, and that one day we will give an account for how we have lived. When that happens, integrity goes by the wayside, and our faith becomes a problem. Um, my favorite movie of all time is Tombstone. If you've been around Waterfront, you've probably heard me share that before. Um, if you remember, there is a character uh, where uh, he uh, uh, claims to be a man of the law, but really his badge is just a prop in his life. The whole movie centers around the scene that's the shootout at the OK Corral between the Earp Boys and the Cowboy Gang. And do you remember the scene? I love it. They're walking towards, and the law's been made that you can have a gun, you just can't carry it in town. And do you remember? The Earp Boys stand up for justice in that circumstance. Somebody's breaking the law, and they want to protect the town from it. So they walk up, but the sheriff in town is a dude named Behan. And Behan is hanging out with one of the actresses in town. He's uh, hobnobbing with all the big wigs. And do you remember the scene? They walk to the OK Corral, and Behan is the one that can step up and instill law and order. And instead, he jumps and dives behind the couch in the little side room that he's in. After the shootout takes place with the Earps, Doc Holliday, and the Cowboys, law has been settled. Everything's happened, and everything's settled down. And do you remember the scene? All of a sudden, out of the blue... Behan knows he couldn't beat the cowboys. He needs them bringing money into town, but he also can't stand up to the herbs. But he has that prop of a badge. He has that sheriff's badge. And you remember the scene? He hops up, 
And he looks at Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and he goes, hey, you're all under arrest for breaking the law. And do you remember, uh, uh, it's, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, who plays Wyatt Earp? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell looks, squints his eyes, and he goes, I don't think I'll let you arrest us today, Behan. And all of a sudden, Behan backs away and the Earp boys walk off. Do you know why? Because even though he wore that badge, he didn't have the character, the integrity to be able to stand up and to do what was right. Now, again, this is not a point the finger at others day. This is a look your day. Have you cut your legs out from underneath you from a leadership perspective because you have lived in a corrupt fashion, because you are claiming a faith but not truly walking it, not truly living it? It begs the question, this is a heavy one, is any part of your faith insincere? Is any part of your faith insincere? Is there something in your life that you claim, but if people took a closer look, they would see it's only words, and honestly, it's, it's a bit dishonest. The biblical example of this comes from Acts 19. You don't have to flip there. But the biblical example is Paul is going through planting churches, and it says at one point through his ministry that the Holy Spirit is working so powerfully through Paul that all he has to do is touch a handkerchief and hand it to somebody, and they receive healing. I mean, it's just amazing, and nobody knew better than Paul that he wasn't the one doing it, but it was the work of God that was passing through him that was empowering these individuals, that was, that was healing, that was spreading the message. But there's a group called the Seven Sons of Sceva. Remember this story? It's a crazy little story. The Seven Sons of Sceva are the sons of the chief priest. They don't have a relationship with Christ, and all they've done is heard from Paul. They've not actually ever, according to Scripture, ever even met him before. So they have somebody who has a demon that needs to be cast out, and the seven sons of Sceva, these ones who have this title uh, through their father's job, the ones that have this, again, this, this uh, reputation uh, for being ones that, that live uh, in accordance uh, with Almighty God, they show up at this person's house, and they try to cast out a demon and say this. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches... We cast out this demon. Well, here's the deal. You're led to believe through that statement. They have no relationship with Jesus, and they don't even really know Paul. But they're trying to invoke his name because they've heard that's something that's supposed to happen. They've heard that's the right thing to do. And you remember how the story ends? It says that the demon speaks to the man and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of but I don't know who you are. And it says the demon then through the man beat up the seven dudes and they run out of the house naked. Go back and read Acts 19. That's a real story. Now listen, just for the record, a little side note, um, Paul's name can't save you. And if you're counting on Pastor Zach's name to save you, I can't do it either. The demon says, Jesus, I know. That name I respect. That name is power. The name above every name. And Paul, yeah, I've heard of him, but that name doesn't have any power over me either. So your name certainly doesn't mean anything to me. Don't miss this. Without the relationship, if you are claiming faith, but there is no true relationship behind it, just like the seven sons of Sceva, it only ends in humiliation. Is there part of your faith that's insincere? Maybe today is the big flashing warning sign for you that you need to get right with God, that there's sin that needs to be confessed, that there's something in your life, a lifestyle that needs to be halted, and it's time to move forward in faith. Look at the next part, though. Now let's look at verses 10 and 11. 2 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11. 
Here's what it says next. It says, then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel. Unlined sent secret messengers to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom's king in Hebron. It says 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom, and they had been invited guests. But look at this. And they went quite, innocent, they went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. Stop right there for just a minute. From the beginning of the passage until now, Absalom has claimed what he's doing is bestful, but everything has become about him. If you're taking notes, how does a godly leader become corrupt? Number one, faith becomes a prop. And number two, people become disposable. People become disposable. At the beginning, he denies people justice at the city gate. He keeps them from walking in where they could receive help because he wants to steal their hearts and he wants them to follow him. In this part of the passage, he has tied in secret messengers. And the reason he wants to do this in Hebron, don't miss this, is because that's where David was affirmed as king the first time. So his plan is, without any bloodshed, to just say, hey, why don't you go through all these towns and villages? And he sends the secret messengers and says, as soon as they see us march through the villages on our way to Hebron, you cry out, Absalom is king in Hebron. The entire nation will think that all of a sudden there's two kingdoms or that I'm the one that David has anointed as his successor, as his heir. In fact, we then have the 200 men from Jerusalem that accompanied Absalom. Some scholars believe that that was David after hearing that Absalom wanted to repent, that then all of a sudden David comes up and says to his 200 closest friends, we're going to need someone to bear testimony that he really has changed. Go. I can't go and be there with him. It'll look like I've coaxed him into this. Man, go with him. The deepest spiritual advisors for David, he sends them alongside and says, go, be witness to the repentance that takes place. And instead, they were just pawns in Absalom's hands. And he uses them to try to affirm himself as king. It begs this statement. Are you ready? When a leader cares more for their position than their people, they are no longer in a headspace to clearly hear from the Lord. When a leader cares more for their position than their people, they are no longer in a headspace to clearly hear from the Lord. Some of you have been waiting for your monthly Red Lobster story. All right, here it is, okay? So I worked four and a half years at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster, all right? And uh, while I was there, I worked at Red Lobster in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And the problem with Stillwater is Stillwater is a true college town. When the college kids are in town, the town doubles in size. When they're gone, it's half the size. And so the busiest day of the year for all Red Lobsters worldwide is Mother's Day, all right? Everybody wants to take mama out to a seafood lunch on Mother's Day, all right? But there's a problem with the college town. If that's the busiest day of the year, what else happens in the middle of May? Graduation. So here's what happened. At the beginning of May... Because nobody wanted to work Mother's Day. And in a college town, you had graduation, but you also had mamas that looked and said, whenever you said, what do you want for Mother's Day, mama? And mama would always go, what? I just want you to come home, right? I just want you to be with me. That's what I want more than anything else in the world. So we have an entire staff of college kids, right, with a few others sprinkled in. And so our manager, looking at the schedule, realizes I'm not going to have enough people to staff on the busiest day of the year. So the manager calls a meeting and says, we're going to be in real trouble. So you are now required, if you are on staff 
you are required to work Mother's Day every single year in order to keep your job. Well, we're sitting there at lunch, having this meeting. All the servers there, I think it was 80 people in the room that day. We're listening to it. All these different college students, myself included, offering up why we couldn't do that, why that didn't work. And then the oldest member of our wait staff, a woman named Sherry, and she loved to smoke Virginia Slims. All right, this is back when we had the smoking section, okay, in the restaurant. And I remember Sherry's got a Virginia Slim. She's in her early 60s, had been there since the restaurant had opened. And I remember Sherry's in the corner, lots of Virginia Slim, takes a puff, and then she goes, I'll quit. That's what she says. It's two words. I'll quit. And I see the manager. It was so interesting. Caught between a rock and a hard place. Because Sherry is a mother and a grandmother, but he's had to make this rule. And so what happened next was stuff of Red Lobster legend, all right? <laughs> the manager, instead of belittling her and make fun, making fun of her in front of the group, instead of offering her mercy in front of the group, Instead, he looks at her and says, the rules are the rules. And Sherry, I need to see you in my office. She goes into his office, and then she walks out. None of us had any idea what was said in there, but here's what I know. Sherry didn't resign after that. And for the next three years, Sherry was never scheduled for Mother's Day, all right? <laughs> now, can I tell you the truth? She was a mother and a grandmother. She worked a lunch shift every day during the week. She was the one on the staff that didn't demand an evening shift because that's when the money was to be made. She put in the time. And so guess what we can all assume? That the general manager did what he was supposed to do, that he made an exception for her. Not for everyone because he needed to staff the restaurant. But in her circumstance, he treated her like a person. Listen to me. For some of you, you need to remember that the people are important. You are not in the management position because you are great. You are in the management position because the Lord has placed you there to take care of others. It's an old saying from our seminary class, and it's so true to this day. Our professor would walk in, and he would divide the room in two, and he'd have half the room. He'd say, class, why does the Lord bless us? And half the class would say, blessed to be, and the other half would say, a blessing. And we would chant it right there at the beginning. Lord, why does the class, or your class, why does the Lord bless us? Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And he would say, now we can start the course for the day. You're not in the management position because you're great. The Lord has allowed you and placed you into that position to take care of people. Amen? When people become disposable and dispensable, we are in a really wicked place. And like we read about in Proverbs 6, the Lord will mercilessly and swiftly destroy you. You incite the wrath of God when people are worthless in your eyes. It begs this question. You ready? Is there anyone in your life that you've been deceiving? Is there anyone in your life that you've been deceiving? Someone that you've been telling them, I care for you. I love you. I want what's best for you. And in your heart of hearts, you know I'm just keeping them on the hook because I need that pawn to guard me from that bishop. I need that rook to make sure that the, it, that the queen doesn't come across and hit me. Now, listen to me. That happens. That cannot be the godly. You do that, you'll be swiftly and mercilessly destroyed. Is that a good word? Let's keep moving. You ready? Last verse today. For our, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to read verse 12. I'm about to introduce you to a pretty wicked character. You ready? Here we go. Chapter, chapter 15, verse 12. 
It says, while Absalom was offering sacrifices. Underline offering sacrifices. He's not sorry. Why is he following through with this religious motion? It's all part of the act. It's all part of the prop. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he didn't want anybody to ask any questions. He also sent for Ahithrophel. Underline and highlight Ahithrophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. Underline David's counselor to come from Galo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Now stop right there for just a second. David's counselor doesn't quite do it justice. This was David's political counselor. This was his presidential chief of staff. Ahithrophel wasn't just anybody. This was the chief of staff, the one making the big political decisions. Joab's the one who's the secretary of defense. He's the one making the military decisions. Ahithrophel, he's the politician. And Nathan is the one. Nathan the prophet is the one who's helping and assisting in the spiritual decisions. What you need to know here is for Absalom to go to David's chief of staff, what he's decided, some of you work in those offices, what he's decided is, I'm taking this all the way to the top, and once he crosses this boundary, there is no going back. Now, why in the world did he feel like Ahithrophel would go with him and not with David? Because there is a lot of reason to believe, this is crazy, there's a lot of reason to believe biblically that Ahithrophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Remember the story of Bathsheba in chapter 11? You can go back to the very beginning of this series and you can study it. The woman that David sees from the top of, the, from the top of his palace, he sees her bathing. She's married to, another, married to another man, calls for that woman to be brought to him, and then uh, kills her husband, marries her, and tries to cover up the whole thing. It's not 100%, but the way that the lineages come together, many believe that the reason we have in this passage, Absalom knowing, once I go to Ahithrophel, it's the highest that this conspiracy can go, and I know he wants to see David put in his place because of what he did to his family. If you're taking notes, how does a godly leader become corrupt? Number one, faith becomes a prop. Number two, people become disposable. And number three, boundaries become optional. Boundaries become optional. I want you to notice that I put in parentheses for you. Can I tell you why? Because if you are in this position where boundaries have become optional, you still count on boundaries being in place for other people, just not for you because you're the one who calls the shots in your own life. You've moved so far to never, never land, right? That in your brain, you feel like everybody else has to abide by the rules, but because I'm king, because I'm smarter, because I have, uh, because I have more understanding, because I am the puppet master of everything going on around me. Boundaries are for little people. Boundaries are not for me. When he does that, he crosses a line here, and then it cannot be stopped. In West Texas, where I'm from, Lots of barbed wire fences. Let's pretend that the edge of this carpet is a barbed wire fence. You ever crossed a barbed wire fence before? Okay. Crossing a barbed wire fence is pretty dangerous, all right? Because fences are pretty high, and usually there's just enough room, keeps the cattle where they're supposed to be, but just enough room that somebody can climb over it if they want. But you climb over a barbed wire fence very intentionally. You swing over, and then you hold that barbed wire down as far as you can, to not tear your pants or, God forbid, something worse, all right? So you hold it down, but it is a very, very thought-through process of crossing that boundary. And then you 
You kick your leg over and you come over the other side. Okay? I tell you that to say this. There are boundaries in the relationships with people around you. And you need to know when your brain becomes corrupt, when there is no authority of Scripture in your life, when you begin to fake and be insincere in your faith, uh, in your, uh, in your faith journey, in your belief in Almighty God and His sovereignty, when you don't care about what happens to your fellow man around you, you are standing right on the verge of going, you know what? I can get to the other side of that fence, and I don't care why that boundary is there. I deserve to do what I want to do. I want to encourage you. There are some people at your work. There are some people in a romantic relationship. There are some people in your family. And you do not need to cross that boundary. It begs the statement, you would do well to figure out who in your life has a rigid boundary. You would do well to figure out who in your life has a rigid boundary. And then I'm going to give you two words to add to that. Honor it. Honor the boundary. If you don't, it's Proverbs 6. You will be swiftly and mercilessly destroyed. Now listen, some of you are here today, and the whole purpose of this message was the Holy Spirit's way of speaking to your heart because you needed a big flashing neon sign, a big warning light, because of something that you're about to jump into or something you've been thinking about jumping into. I want to encourage you, if the boundary is there, honor it. There is nobody who can jump to another side of something, who can jump into another area, where if you know morally, if you know in accordance with Scripture that that is a boundary that needs to be honored, just stay away from it. I'm going to give you a silly example. Just saw the new Top Gun movie, all right? I've spoiled a lot of movies for you people over the years. And there is a spectacular example for this point in my sermon that comes from the new Top Gun movie. But I'm not going to share it with you. <laughs> Do you know why? Because you hadn't had time to see it yet. It wouldn't be fair. So I'm going to show restraint and not step over that side of the barbed wire fence. All right? You'll get to hear it. You got one year to watch that movie, and then I'll share it with you. All right? Silly example, but I hope it sticks with you. For some of you know, if you spend time with that person, romantic feelings are going to develop. You know what my mother-in-law taught my wife when she was in high school? She said, be careful who you spend your time with. You might just fall in love with them. It's a pretty powerful word. Be careful who you spend your time with. You might just fall in love with them. There's some of you that would say, well, what am I supposed to do? I work with this person. You know when you step over a barbed wire fence. You know when it drifts over and inappropriate. For some of you, let's just be honest. That barbed wire fence is interviewing for other jobs. I realize that it's a lot of fun to network by interviewing in this town. But hadn't you figured out D.C.'s a big, stinking small town? Everybody in your office is going to know that you talk with that person at lunch. And it's going to make its way back to your boss. And then when they start looking to do promotions later, guess what? They're not going to go, oh, well, he or she's in high demand. They're going to go, that person's disloyal. I think we could probably go with somebody else who's not met with someone from the opposition for lunch. Isn't that interesting? That's the way it works. But you go, it was no big deal. I just was trying to get paid what I'm worth. Be careful that you're not stepping over a boundary, that you're not stepping over a barbed wire fence. There's times to do it, and there are other times it's you saying there shouldn't be any responsibility for me. It begs the final question today, and this is a heavy one. Are you establishing a relationship that crosses a line? 
He asks it again. Are you establishing a relationship that crosses the line? I appreciate you listening today. Look at my eyes just for a minute. We're about to do our time of invitation. Don't miss, because I usually use the same wording, and so sometimes you can kind of get into a groove. We're going to tell everybody to keep their eyes closed and their heads bowed today, including the band that's about to come up. The three big questions that we went through, I want to encourage you to be honest. Usually I'll ask you to raise your hand today if you just want to raise one finger. Don't be the middle one, all right, okay? (laughs) But if you just want to raise one finger, listen to me, or even just nod your head. Listen, these are so personal, but there are some of you that need to be set free because your heart has started down a spiral of corruption. If that's you, there is freedom for you today, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. But you got to acknowledge it before you can confess it. Let's bow our heads for prayer.